Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, My name is John Miklas. I'm the lead pastor here at CCC, and I want to welcome everyone, especially if you're a first-time guest. Great to have you here with us, as well as our returning guests and those that call CCC their church home. It's great to have you here with us as well. So uh, would you join me again in just thanking Matt and his team for leading us in worship this morning? Thank you all. We greatly appreciate that. In case some of you are wondering, that was a familiar face on the drum kit behind us. That was Tim, one of our drummers, who was joining them this morning as well. But uh, Matt and his team are part of the uh, Reading Area Worship, uh, Worship Leaders uh, Network, and uh, they've been an incredible support to us during this time with Johnny's uh, injury and recovery, uh, supporting us not only with their team here, but resources and uh, personnel all throughout this time. So it's been a great opportunity for us as the church to see how the, the big C church, the body of Christ works together as uh, they are here serving us where others are serving their church this Sunday morning. So we are very, very blessed to be uh, the recipients of that, and we look forward to being able to offer that in other ways to others in the future and the days to come. Well, this morning we're going to start a new series entitled 40 Days of Prayer. And uh, we're going to invite our church to focus on and give priority to the subject of prayer. I believe I was in college when I began to realize that there was some power in this idea of prayer. Uh, when I was a, there was a family member that um, uh, their relationship had been fractured, and I was praying that that relationship would be reconciled. And God answered that prayer in that season of my life. And I was like, wow, God really answers prayer in significant ways that I didn't expect um, and I was somewhat surprised by. It was kind of my first glimpse into God answering a big prayer in my life. And over the next few days and weeks and years in college and grad school, I experienced God answering my prayers a number of times, especially regarding my, my school bill and the finances. My parents weren't able to help me with my finances. I worked in school. I worked in the summers. But I had to have a certain amount of money before I could start school the next year, and God would answer those prayers, and money would show up, uh, sometimes from a family member, sometimes anonymously. Um, But I saw God answer prayers over and over and over again. And my belief and my confidence in God was growing. During the, the, over the next few years, Christine and I would navigate many things, including infertility, in which God didn't choose to answer our prayers the way that we were praying. He didn't answer our prayers, but he chose to do it in a very different way. And so this subject of prayer, while it's filled with a lot of great joy and excitement, there's challenges that are associated with it as well. There's confusion, there's pain. But prayer is something that's important to all of us. If you type prayer in Amazon and you search for books on prayer, uh, there's 200,000 books on prayer. So there's a lot of interest in prayer. Um, If you Google prayer, you find 110 million sites on prayer. 110 million websites, books, news articles, videos, magazines, or messages. The truth is we're all wired by the Creator Himself to be involved in prayer. Um, It's in our DNA to have a connection to our Creator. And if you think about it, all the world religions pray. Buddhists pray, Hindus pray, Muslims pray, Jews pray, Christians pray, even atheists pray. You say, what do you mean atheists pray? Well, if you hit an atheist unexpectedly, they're not going to say, oh my man, they're going to say, oh my God, you know, right? I mean, even atheists pray. We're different than the animals. Animals communicate with us. If you have animals, you know some, some of them communicate with you. Cats don't, but most animals communicate with you, you know. Um, but, but, but they don't pray. Dogs don't pray. You know, fish don't pray. Dolphins don't pray. Hyenas don't pray. Elephants don't pray. You know, we're the only mammals that pray. 
But there's this tension that in spite of the fact that we're wired to pray, it's something that we feel very inadequate about, very inadequate. Most people don't like to pray in front of other people, um, even in sometimes small group or even over a meal. Every one of us wants to improve at prayer. If you ask anybody, how's, how's your prayer life? They're, oh, it could be better. You know, I wish I did this. I wish I'd... I never have anybody say, oh, it's great, you know. Never have anybody tell me their prayer life is great. Never, ever, ever had anybody tell me that. Um, you know, in church circles, when you, you know, read resume for pastors, it doesn't say prayer is one of your, you know, your professional prayer. It doesn't say that anywhere. Paul even said that in Romans 8, 26. He said, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray. Well, if Paul didn't know what he needed to pray at times, it makes us feel a little bit better. The disciples felt this tension as well. They spent three years with Jesus, and they didn't say to Jesus, teach us to do miracles. They didn't say to Jesus, teach us to lead better or teach us how to be humble. What did they say? They said, Lord, teach us to what? Pray. Pray. And so I think it's okay to feel a bit inadequate about prayer considering the disciples and Paul felt that way about prayer. But my hope is through this time that we spend over these next six weeks is that it will not only increase our understanding of prayer, but our hope in prayer and our confidence in prayer, not only in the words that we say, but in the God that we are praying to, in the God that we are praying to. And my prayer is that during this time, you will discover the heart of God in prayer, what God wants you to be praying, and you'll experience God in some remarkable ways. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about these subjects. Today, we're going to talk about making it rain. We're going to look at when Jesus said, teach us to pray. What did he say? And then in 513, um, we're going to look at what does it mean not to quit and pray, the heart of someone who prayers, surrender in prayer, and lastly, shameless audacity in our prayers. Shameless audacity in our prayers. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack right in front of you. You can follow along. That's the page number of the one in front of you. You can also grab a follow along on an app on your phone or wireless device. 1 Kings 16 is where we're going to pick up a story this morning. And we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament and see a challenge that comes out of it. And then hopefully apply it to our lives today in the situations that we find ourselves in 1 Kings 16, the, the land of Israel um, had been divided. There was a northern part of the kingdom and a southern part of the kingdom. And the kings is a record of the kings in the north and the south. It was a record of these two kings and what was taking place in their lives. And so the story begins in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. It says, In the 38th year of, of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became the king. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So he's in the northern part. That's where Samaria was in the northern part. And Ahab became the king and he reigned for 22 years. Look what it says about Ahab. It says he did more evil than any of those before him. Ahab was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. Um, goes on to describe what he did. He married a woman named Jezebel. Now marrying someone with that name made his life not much better, but... Um, you know, and look at the bottom. He began to serve Baal and worship him. False God. He set up an altar for him, and he built a temple in Samaria. And it says he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than all the kings of Israel before him. He was the worst of the worst. I mean, if you put him in our context, he was worse than Gaddafi, worse than Hussein, worse than Assad, worse than Kim Jong-il. I mean, he was worse than the worst. You put them all together and he was worse than all of them. He was worse than all of them. 
And why was he worse than all of them? Because he married a foreign king's daughter, he worshiped false gods, and he built false altars. It says he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord. And so while this is happening in this part of the land of Israel, um, God speaks to a prophet. And a prophet was a spokesman for God. A prophet was someone who heard from God and then spoke. That's how God communicated. They didn't have the Bible. God didn't speak to people directly. He spoke through a prophet. Through a prophet. And this prophet's name was Elijah. And this prophet's name was Elijah. And Elijah was given God's instructions, and he was told to go tell the people what was going to happen. And Elijah didn't make up his own words. Prophets weren't allowed to make up their own words about what God was going to say. They had to only speak for God. They had to only speak for God. And God had said to the people of Israel, He said, if you do what I tell you to do, if you obey me, life is going to go well for you. But if you disregard me, if you do not obey Deuteronomy and follow all my decrees, all these curses will come on you. And what were some of those curses? The Lord will strike you with a scorching heat and drought, which will plague you until you perish. The sky will be bronze, the ground will be iron, the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. And so, if they didn't follow God, God says, drought and famine's coming. And so, that's exactly what Elijah was told. He said to Ahab, as the Lord God lives, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. They lived in the desert, and there wasn't much rain. It only rained 21 inches a year in the desert. Um, We get 42 inches of rain annually, so we get twice as much. For six months, it would not rain. So to say it wouldn't rain for a few months, that was no big deal. But to say it was not going to rain for a few years, that was a big deal. Because one of the things that we observed when we were in Israel is there's places to collect water everywhere. In the rock, there's places to collect water. And they're always collecting water. And they're collecting water um, because it hardly ever rains. And so they, they keep that water. It's very, it's very important. It's almost priceless in that part of the world. Um, and so Elijah, excuse me, Ahab was king of Samaria right there in the middle And you can see kind of the brown. The green part is a little bit further up north, but the brown, that's right in the middle of the desert region. And the prophet Elijah was from Gilead, so just across the Jordan River is where he was located. And so Elijah said, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. And then he went back home, basically into this area, and he stayed there by a brook. It goes on to say in the next verse, um, verse 2, it says, the famine was so severe in Samaria. And what Elijah did, oh, excuse me, 17 verse 2. Um, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I will direct the ravens to supply you with food that was there. So he spent three years in this location, and for three years the ravens, which if you know anything about ravens, they're scavengers um, to all the ravens fans here. They just eat dead meat. That's all they do, you know. Um, <laughs> But they didn't eat the dead meat. They actually brought it to him. Somehow they found bread. I don't know where they swiped the bread from, but somehow they found bread. They brought him bread. The text is very clear. They brought him bread and meat for three years. And shortly into this time period, the river dries up, and he has to go to a different location. And in the rest of chapter 17, there's a couple of these miracles that happen with Elijah where he provides oil that doesn't run out, and he raises a young man from the dead. But towards the end of this three-year window, God says, now it's time I've got another assignment for you. 
So it's into the third year, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. He said, go present your a- yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, it's important to understand that Ahab knew that Elijah had said it's not going to rain. And so, Elijah was most wanted man number one in the country. Most wanted man number one. And so, what Ahab had been doing is he had been rounding up the other prophets that he knew about and killing them. And so, there's this guy in in 1 Kings 18 by the name of Obadiah, and he's the palace administrator, but nobody knew he was a follower of God. And somehow, he would hear where they were going to go and raid, and he would get word out to them in advance, and they would go and hide these prophets so that they wouldn't be killed. And so, he was most wanted man number one, and God says to him, by the way, go tell the king, here I am, and I'm going to take care of this problem. Now, we're talking about prayer, and I don't know about you, but I think one of Elijah's prayers for three years, and maybe even here, might have been, God, help me not to lose my head. Help me not to lose my… That would have seemed like a very reasonable prayer, but you never hear that from Elijah. You never hear it from him. He says, just go and present yourself. And it was so bad, so he did exactly what God called him, but it tells us here how bad it was. Ahab said to Obadiah, his palace administrator, go through the land, all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we don't have to kill all of our animals. They couldn't even keep their livestock alive. They're trying to find grass. That's how bad the famine was. There was nothing anywhere at this point in time. And so, um, so Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah wasn't too thrilled with the nickname. He said, that's not on me, buddy. That's on you. I haven't made the trouble. He said, it's all your fault. You abandoned the Lord's commands, and you have followed the Baals. And so, Elijah said, let's go meet. Summon the people from all over Israel. We're going to meet on Mount Carmel. Bring 400 of your prophets, actually 950 of them, who eat at your wife's table. And we're going to get this all sorted out. And so that's what they did. They headed over to Mount Carmel, which is over on the coast, and they said, we're going to go over there and we're going to get this sorted out. And so they made their way over there, and um, as they made their way over there, what Elijah said is he said, okay, you've got your prophets over here and I'm on this side. Let's go get two bulls, and what you're going to do is we're each going to build an altar, we're going to sacrifice this animal, we're going to pray to our gods, we're going to see which God brings fire, and that's the God everybody's going to serve. That's the God everybody's going to serve. That was Elijah's plan. And somehow the king agreed with the plan. Didn't kill Elijah, but agreed with the plan. And so the prophets of Baal, they built their altar, they cut up their bull, they laid him out on the, the, on the altar. And this, as the story goes in 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, they tried to get their God to bring fire to burn up this altar. And after about two hours of this, Elijah started just poking and prodding them. You know, I kind of like Elijah. That's the kind of kid I was. I always got other people in trouble. I don't know how it happened, but I just, I just got them in trouble. I just knew where to poke, where to push, where to prod. And so it's like, hey, maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's asleep. You know, maybe he's taking, you know, maybe he's out for lunch. You know, maybe he's taking a dump. I don't know. He's busy doing something, you know. Can't you go find the guy and get him here? Like, nothing's happening. And they got worked up in such a tizzy, they started slashing themselves, which is what they did when they would sacrifice. So they were bleeding all over the place. Nothing. 
Nothing. So Elijah says, okay, time's up, guys. My turn. My turn. And so he arranged the wood. He built an altar, took 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. He cut up the wood, cut up the bull, got it all ready to burn, and then he adds a little twist. And look at his twist. He says, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering. Now, we think jars. We think like a mason jar, right? That's what we think. We think of jars. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a, one of those things that's about this big, you know, and they probably had to put it on the back of, a, back of a cart with a mule and haul it over to the Mediterranean Sea, fill it with water, bring it back over, and then tip those things over and douse it. And then he says, not just once, but I want you to do it again and do it a third time. I want this so totally soaked. So totally soaked. I hate it in the winter when it snows and I forget to bring in wood to start my coal stove. Because there is no way you're starting to fire with wet wood. There is no way. You got to find, you got to scramble underneath, try to find some dry stuff underneath all the wet stuff, right? There's no way you're starting to fire with wet wood. But this was saturated. This was saturated. And so that's what he does. And then he turns, it ran down around the water. He filled a trench, built a trench to collect all the water around the side so it didn't even run away. And then he prays. And I want us to look at his prayer. He says, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel. His first prayer, he says, I want everybody to know that you are the God. Because this is ultimately about who's the God here? Who's in charge? Who's running the show? Because the prophets of God, they were running and hiding. Ahab's killing everybody left and right. And it appears that Ahab's gods are the ones in charge. He said, I want you to make sure everybody know who's in charge and that I'm your servant and I've done everything you've asked. One thing that's true about Elijah, he did everything God said. Everything God said. And then he says, answer me, answer me, Lord. And then he says it again, so that these people will know you are the Lord. And look at this last phrase, and that you are turning their hearts back again. You know, we sang that song, Reckless Love, and when Stephanie read that to us, it reminded us that God is always coming after us. Always coming after us. And one thing, if you read about the prophets, if you make your way and somehow manage to read through all the Old Testament prophets, you find this phrase, bring them back, bring them back, bring them back. That's all God cares about. Somehow bringing his people back to him. And he'll do whatever it takes, even when it doesn't make any sense, even when it doesn't add up, even when it leaves you scratching your head, like tolling down fire on wet wood. But that's what Elijah prayed. And so as he prayed, what, God, what did God do? He wanted them to know that they were the God of, he was the God of Israel, that he was his servant. He said it again, the God of Israel, and you're turning their hearts back to you. Notice Elijah didn't pray for rain. He didn't pray for rain. What mattered him to him most was that people's hearts would be after God, following him with a whole heart. That was the point of the altar. That was the point of the confrontation with Ahab. That was the point of the sacrifice. And what happened? Well, the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. I tried to look up how hot a fire had to be to burn up stones. I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet. I could find lots of books on prayer, but nothing about burning up stones. 
just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And also looked up the water in the trench. And how the people respond when they saw this, they fell on their face and they said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. He prayed that they would know that the God of Israel existed and that they would turn their hearts back to Him and God answered His prayer in an amazing way. And then He goes on in the verse 41 to say to Ahab, go eat and drink for there's a sound of heavy rain. I'm trying to imagine what's going on in Ahab's head right about now. I mean, he brought the best of the best, 950 prophets. They failed miserably. They didn't even get the first base. They got shut out completely, embarrassed, humiliated. And now Ahab, now Elijah's telling Ahab, go do this, go do this. And he does it. He does it. Go eat and drink, for there's a sound of heavy rain. So what did Ahab do? He went off eating a drink. But what did Elijah do? He climbed to the top of the mountain. And he bent down and put his face between his knees. And then he said to his servant, he said, go look at the sea and tell me if it's raining, if the rain's coming, you know, or the storm cloud's coming. I mean, I looked out my window about 4.30 yesterday. I was going to cut my lawn. I was like, ah. I thought maybe I can squeeze in and I went to open the door and the wind was like, ah, no chance. Because it was coming, right? That came fast. And all of a sudden, it went from 70 degrees and beautiful to like, you know, 50. And the wind and the, it was fast. It showed up. So he's, he's like, go look. And if you're on a mountain and you're looking over the sea, you can see a long ways. And he says, go look. And he said, there's nothing there. And he said, is it coming yet? Nothing. Is it coming yet? Nothing. Is it coming? Nothing. Is it coming? Nothing. I don't know about you, but I think I'd be going and getting something to eat by about now. But he kept kneeling, bowing, praying. Is it coming? Nothing. Finally, the seventh time, is it coming? I see a little cloud the size of a man's fist in the horizon. And Elijah says, let's go. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And he got tucked up his cloak, and he took off another miracle. He outran Ahab's chariot back to where they were going. Um, but as I thought about this story, as we dove into this subject of prayer, I thought I wanted us to start here. I want to start. You say, why did you want us to start here, John? Because I think if I were to ask you, what are you praying about today? What's most important for you? Most of you could prattle, probably rattle off six or seven requests that are on the tip of your tongue, things that are on your mind, things that are on your heart that you're talking to God about. But let me ask you this question. How many of our requests... Um, are centered around safety, safety, happiness, and comfort. When we travel, what do we pray for? Safety, right? What do we want most in our lives? Avoid conflict and be happy. I think that we want to be sickness-free, problem-free, conflict-free, and financially free. That's what we want. And so what do we pray about? Those things, right? That's what we pray about. And while I believe God longs to provide those things, as any father wants to provide for his, his son or daughter, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. If that is all we're praying for, we're missing something. Elijah could have prayed for safety. Ahab was killing off all his buddies. And I'm not suggesting that these are not prayers God doesn't want to answer or hear from us, but I wonder if there's something more 
that God desires for us to pray about these next 40 days. Something more than our safety, our comfort, and our happiness. Because what if health and safety and comfort and happiness is not what God has planned for our lives? And none of us like that thought. I'm right there with you. None of us like that thought. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to take up your cross and follow me, then you have to abandon all. You have to surrender it all. You have to die to yourself. You have to hate your father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, everything. I mean, you have to... None of those things can matter to you more than Him. What if all of these things were just icing on the cake? And what if God has something more? I suspect that this point of these stories is not for us to pray for rain. It happens with regular frequency here. And I don't think the point of these stories is us to try to defeat false prophets with your prayers. But what if the point of these stories is how God could use one person and one person's prayer and amazing things happen? Amazing things happen. I want us to look at a a place in the New Testament where this story is referenced. Turn forward to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. It's page 980 in the Bibles in your seats there. James 5. James was the brother of Jesus, um, so he hung around Jesus, knew Jesus quite well, knew the writings and the stories of Jesus. And James wrote a letter called the Book of James, not a very creative title, but the Book of James. Um, but it's an old, it's a New Testament version of Proverbs. Most people know about Proverbs, a lot of wisdom about wise ways to live life. Well, James wrote the same thing about wise ways to follow Jesus. And that's what James, the Book of James is all about. And in James chapter 5, he's talking about prayer for those who are sick, and I believe battling health issues due to spiritual battles taking place. He encourages us to address our sins, um, to, to deal with the sins in our lives and pray for healing. And the end of this section, he has these words. In the King James Version, what I grew up reading, it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And when I was younger reading that, it seemed like that's a, man, that's a pretty serious dude, you know? The effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man. I mean, that's like the elders of the church, or that's this unique kind of prayer warrior that comes and he prays for people and he prays about things, and and God does these remarkable things when this kind of guy prays, or this kind of woman prays, but that's not really me. And then a few years later, I read it again, or modern translation, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I thought about that idea of a righteous person, and I thought that's someone who does what God says is right, and someone who chooses to follow Jesus, and God looks at them and says, they're right, they're right, they're right in my eyes, they're right in my eyes. And I realized, that could be me. My prayers could be powerful. My prayers could be effective. And James says that our prayers for one another can bring about healing. He then goes on, takes us back to the story of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a human being just like we are. Ah, I love that phrase. I love that phrase. (laughs) Elijah was a guy just like all of us. 
I mean, he ate like us. He slept. Well, he didn't eat like us. He ate food from ravens. That's a little different, but, you know, probably slept on a rock, you know. But he got angry like us, got depressed like Elijah's a guy just like us. And this prayer person, this person with this powerful and effective prayer, it's not this, you know, super spiritual prayer person, this person that's been walking with Jesus for 50, 60 years. It's, no, it's anybody who's a follower of Jesus. And Elijah was someone who followed the God of the heavens. And what happened to him? He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And he prayed again, and guess what? It rained. It rained. Maybe the point of Elijah's story is that God wants to use every single one of us in this room. If you're a follower of Jesus and you pray and you talk to God, He is going to use your prayers in a powerful and effective way. And if God will use us in that way, what's God going to do? What's God going to do? You know, Elijah had a benefit we don't have. He wasn't quite like us because God told him exactly what to do. And, and God doesn't do that with us that specifically. God doesn't say, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do this. But sometimes God does. Sometimes God does. And so my challenge for you as we enter this next 40 days is to start by saying, God, what is it you want me to pray about? I want you to start by saying, God, what do you want me to pray about during the next 40 days? I don't know what that is. I don't have any idea where he's going to direct your thoughts. But I want to challenge you to move past safety and comfort and happiness and say, God, what is it that really matters what is it that really matters to you? Not just to me. I got a lot of things I would really like. But what matters to you that you want me to be praying about over these next 40 days? And then will you pray about that faithfully? Every day. Just like Elijah did. You know, Elijah could have prayed, God... He could, have, he could have said, you know, it's not going to rain for six months. And they would be like, yeah, we know. We know. And, and sometimes, and I don't mean to trivialize this, I think we ask God for things that God's already planning to do. And we're going to see that when we look at some of these stories, some of these passages over the next few weeks. But I want to challenge you to pray and ask God to do something that you're not sure how God will do. Ask God to restore a relationship. You have no way of knowing if it could ever happen. Ask God to take away a, a habit or an addiction in your life that you've lived with for decades. Ask God to do something that you're not sure how and you have no way of knowing how it would happen. Because when it does, it's not going to be your plans and it's not going to be your prayers and it's not going to be your strategies and it's not going to be your ideas. It's going to be His And you have this overwhelming sense, my prayers, God use me somehow, and I don't quite know how, and I can't explain it, somehow the God of the heavens chose to partner with me to do something that was powerful, that was effective.
that changed someone's life. And I have no idea how that happened. You know, as I invite you into talking with God, I recognize for some of you that's going to be hard. Because some of you have talked to God about something that you wanted Him to do, and He didn't answer your prayer. He hasn't come through. And you're not sure if you're up to giving Him another chance. Some of you are not sure if God really cares about your prayers. Because you were never valued by your earthly father. And so you're not sure how valuable you are to your heavenly father. Some of you might even be willing to admit, you're not sure if your prayer, God's got lots of other things. Why would God care about me? You're not sure if you matter that much to God. So I recognize while I'm talking about this idea of prayer in a powerful, inviting, and engaging way, for some of you, there's some angst in your spirit because of your relationship and what you've experienced with your earthly father. And part of this journey for you over these next six weeks might be for you to have God open your eyes and for God to help you discover that there is a father who loves you, who is always going to be with you, and who longs to answer your prayers in powerful and effective ways. I don't know about you, but I want God to use me. And I think most, if not all of you, want the same thing. But most of us wonder if He really will. He used me. I don't know if I have much to offer. Yeah, he'll, he'll use John. John gets paid for this. John's prayers are a little closer. People tell me that all the time. I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm short. My prayers aren't any closer. A lot of you prayers are closer than mine. But I think every person in this room longs to have the God of the universe say, I want to partner with you to make a difference in this world. And prayer is one of the means that we humble our hearts and we call out to the God of the heavens, just like someone who is just like us, Elijah. And we say, God, I don't know what's stopping the rain is going to be in my life. Maybe it's stopping something, maybe it's starting something, but God, I want you to do it. Reveal it to me. It's where we're going to start. And then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray like it all depends on God. And I'm going to act like it all, I'm going to work like it all depends on me. Let's bow our heads as we close in prayer. And as we do, I just want to give you a moment. I'm just going to be quiet and let you talk to God about where your heart is right now, and then I'll close in prayer.
God, I think we all like the story of Elijah because you win. You win. Evil's defeated. Ahab is shamed and embarrassed. And you win, God. But that's not often my experience or our experience with prayer. Often prayer is daily saying, God, you know this is where my heart is. You know this is what I'm longing for. And uh, we just pray day after day after day. So God, I pray in this season that you are calling us as a church to pray. That whether it's personally or in our small groups, we would start by just saying, God, what do you want us to pray about? Bring our hearts open, our hands open. Say, God, we're on our knees before you saying, what do you want us to pray about? What matters to you? And help make that matter to me. And then God, for these next 40 days, I'm just going to keep bringing it to you again and again and again, just like Elijah did. Believing that rain was coming. And he kept on it over and over God, even when I don't know how and I can't even fathom that you would show up and do something. Help me to faithfully plead with you. God, we need your help to do this. cannot do this on our own. We need you. In Jesus' name.